say, Colin? <laughs> you know, for me, you're in the future. Like, uh, like a man on the moon or in a tin pan. Welcome to the Eat Radio Podcast. And here's your host, Colin Pope from Eat Magazine. Welcome back, and if it's your first time here, I hope you like whiskey, because today we are heading into a very special distillery called The Lark Distillery here in Hobart, Tasmania, and I'm very lucky to be able to introduce you to Mark Nicholson, who's going to be taking us on a tasting flight. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we might have a few surprises along the way. I can't quite tell you what those are yet. And one of the things about this part of the podcast is it's going to be appearing on YouTube later on, on a new project called The Cullen Show. We'll give you more details as that evolves. And that will be with some of the photographs that I took, some of the images I took at the distillery and other parts around Hobart. And so without further ado, I'm feeling a little bit thirsty now just talking about it. So let's jump straight into it. Hi, it's Cullen here from the Eat Magazine podcast, and today I'm joined by Mark Nicholson, and we're at a very, very special place in Hobart. We're at the Lark Tasting House. Is that right? Yes, this is the Lark Distillery Cellar Door or Tasting House or Bar, whatever you'd like to call it, but uh, it's in a beautiful old building which has uh, quite a remarkable history. Right, okay, brilliant. So just uh, to bring the listeners in, and uh, what's, what's the first whiskey we're going to taste jumping straight into it? Well, I guess our flagship lark um, single malt whiskey is the, is the way to start, and uh, one of the things that's put lark on the world map with whiskey has been our 43% port cask whiskey. So it's a traditional single malt whiskey made in the uh, time-honoured Scottish tradition, and it's uh, matured in little quarter casks, which are recouped out of Australian port casks from Sepultsfield in South Australia. So a delicious, good, thick, mouth-filling whiskey, uh, 43% to start off, and uh, I think that'll be a delightful way to start off tonight. All right, brilliant. So I quietly wonder as you pour where we're going to end up, but let's let's not get there just yet. And so one of the things um, I wanted to ask you that that those this goes into those small casks. All the casks. How big are the small casks that it goes into made out of the old port barrels? We've chosen to go with quarter casks, which are one hundred litre casks, and that was a, a very very. Um, telling decision made by Bill Lark in the very earliest days of of our distillation, which only goes back to 1992. That being said, 22 years ago, we were the first distilling uh, whisky distillers in in Australia for, I guess, about 153 years. That that is legal distilling, I must must point out. (laughs) Right, okay, good. So there's a lot of history there. And so just as we as we lift this glass up and we look at that colour. Now, I guess I would I would talk about straw, but it's not really straw, is it? It's much more... Well, it's almost a ruby straw a or ruby a, ri- a rich golden straw. Um, that comes from these beautiful port casks. Australia for 150 years has been making some fantastic fortified wines, both sherry and port or those other lesser-known tokays, muskets and uh, Madeiras, etc., but Sepultsfield, Joseph Sepult came to the Barossa Valley uh, in the um, 1850s and started making some magnificent fortified wines. And of course, there's warehouses full of that. 
And so we are the recipients of those lovely rich barrels, which are coopered. In other words, they're knocked to pieces, they're shaved, toasted, recharred. Um, charring is very important to bring out the rich character of the, uh, of the sherry or the port in the, in the barrels, and then rebuilt as 100-litre barrels or quarter casks and sent to us. Right. So, all right, so we're just lifting it up to the light there. We're getting a little bit of that colour, and then what are we getting on the, what are we getting on the nose well, there? There's a lovely sweetness on the nose. The, um, the nose is dominated by the malt at this stage, and uh, we do actually peat our own barley here in Tasmania with Tasmanian Highland peat, but we only peat at a rate which gives us about 18 or 19 parts per million. So it's not peat-dominated like an Isla malt, it's very much just a lightly peated, um, delicious Tasmanian one. And we let the malt speak. So we let the malt give that lovely, rich, um, thick, oily mouthfeel. Um, and then the peat comes rolling in very, very late on, uh, on the back palate, um, as we get to the finish of the whiskey, with a nice little, um, I guess, smoky bush fiery uh, element on the back. All right, so let's just try that now. It's a cold. It's a cold winter's afternoon in Hobart, and it's taking a little moment or two to warm up. Uh, we could have actually given the bottle a little warm before we started, but but as we warm it in the mouth and as we warm it in our glass, we'll find that it that it starts to uh, atomise a little bit, and we'll get a bigger nose. I, I must say, I'm amazed at how absolutely smooth that is. I, I mean, I do feel like holding it in my hand, bringing yeah. that temperature up just to... Um, and I guess that's something that I learned very early days in Scotland, um, not actually initially with whiskey, but with wine, that we uh -huh. would get a bottle of red out of the cellar and we'd put it on, uh, you know, the old water heaters. Yes. And uh, mm. you'd, heat, you'd sort of warm, <laughs> warm it up there. I'm sure that there were people that were probably putting them in the microwaves back in those days yes. when they came out when they were in a hurry. But we would just warm, or we'd actually often put it in front of the fire, a bottle mm. of red, just bring it up to temperature and then... Um, and then open it, and, and it really it really opened the wine up. But I didn't realise in actual fact that uh, that is quite important with whisky as well. Oh, indeed. With, with a single malt, uh, a quality single malt, you really want it to, to tell its whole story, and it's not really going to do that unless it's at room temperature. So we're really looking somewhere in the, in the 20s, uh, 24, 25 degrees is just lovely for, for whisky, and I do, I do that too. If I'm going to uh, enjoy a whisky after dinner, I'll put the bottle by the fire and sit down in an easy chair and let it warm up a bit as I warm up a bit, and then we're both happy. Brilliant. All right, that's good. I must admit, I'm concerned about putting a bottle of whiskey in front of the fire. I, 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 I think I've seen chefs throwing a bit of whiskey and brandy around and hasn't, hasn't always, uh, you know, it's taken off the odd eye, eyebrow, I must uh, admit. And so how flammable is this? Well, at 43%, at, at this is not particularly flammable at all. It really needs to get over 60% to be uh, volatile or, of course, as you would do with, as a chef, heat it up. And, of course, heating it up, you're actually driving off... Uh, the the, um, the alcohol and that's atomising and you're actually setting fire to the atomising alcohol so the flame is above the, the liquid. But uh, no, at 43, we're p perfectly safe to have it by the fire. Right, OK, but I must admit, I, I never used to like the idea of you know, setting the alcohol on fire when I was younger. I used to be Dreadful very... Waste. I thought this was an awful idea, but, of course, once it bursts into flames and the whole room is very impressed, yes. uh, there are, I do kind of understand part of the showmanship around oh, of that. Oh, It's all about the theatre. Thanks, and we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Ant Stand. 
Introducing AntStand, the most portable laptop stand in the world. So portable, in fact, you'll forget you're carrying it. Turn your laptop into a monitor with AntStand. The AntStand will hold an 11-inch MacBook Air all the way up to a 17-inch MacBook Pro for maximum versatility. The unique design allows the maximum airflow to keep your laptop cool while raising the screen to eliminate neck and shoulder pain. Available in bamboo and aluminum. Visit AntStand.com to get yours today. That's A-N-T-S-T-A-N-D.com. Welcome back, and let's pick up where we've left off. Absolutely. Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the the peat process. I guess for some of our listeners that might not understand the origins of peat and how peat's used in whiskey, uh, particularly in Scotland, then, uh, as you say, compared to that little bit of peat that we're getting now. Mm. Well, peat was always an integral part in the process because of necessity. Um, Scotland, during the illicit days, and there were 150 years or so when there was an oak pretty well open warfare between the illicit uh, whisky makers and those that were taking licenses and paying their taxes. Um, during that time, of course, um, and, and in any whisky making, you need to have uh, a fire to actually dry the barley and to malt the barley and then to, to dry it off after it's malted on the malting floor, you need to have a heat source. And of course, the most economical heat source in Scotland and in Ireland and in other places in the world was peat because they had chopped down all the trees. There weren't trees available, but there were ample amounts of peats in, in peat bogs. And so they would dig peats over the uh, season, set them up in the wind to dry, and then um, use the peat fire to actually dry the malted barley. And in that drying process, the, the peat uh, would be drawn into the barley grains and the peat fennels would bond... Uh, in a beautifully uh, irreversible way, really, with the uh, oil in the malt. So the, the oil in the malt would pick up the peat fennels, and traditionally um, early whisky was very peaty because of this. In the modern era, um, we're lucky because we can choose to have a completely unpeated whisky because they use just hot air um, heated by oil fires or gas fires or any electricity in, in, in that case. And Glen Goyne, I guess, is the most common example in Scotland. They actually have written on the label, uh, untainted by peat. Uh, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, you've got the Isla malts like uh, Octomore and Laphroaig and Ardbeg, Lagavulin, that very, very proudly taste like a cross between bacon and used hospital bandages. There's this lovely iodine, salty, peaty, uh, smoky bushfire character of these whiskies. And, you know, in the, in the whisky drinking world, luckily now we can choose between a sweet, heathery, honey whisky like Dalwini or Glengoyne, right through to the uh, outrageously peated Octomorn from Burraclady on Isla. Right, and out of, out of those uh, whiskies that are from Scotland, I know that we're very much talking about Lark today, which is fantastic, but out of those, out of those Scottish whiskies, uh, which, which is, which is that, that special bottle that you take down and you think, oh, yeah, this is... This is what, what's the name of that? <laughs> well, I've got to confess that I've got some genes that come from Scotland. My family uh, comes from the Isle of Skye, and, of course, the only uh, legal distillery on Skye at the moment is Talisker. And Talisker produces a beautifully balanced, uh, peaty, uh, salty, yet also sweet um, whiskey or malt, 
which I love. Uh, it is, for me, um, the perfect balance between the um, aggressively uh, smoky whiskies of Isla and, of course, the sweeter whiskies from Speyside. And I think uh, being a, an island that's sort of halfway between Isla and Speyside, I think it's, it's only right that that be that harmony, that beautiful balance. And, and I'm completely biased, having uh, a lot of Scottish uh, Sky jeans or Hebridean jeans in my body. So uh, Talisker for me, and I particularly love their Distillers Edition, which is uh, just that delightful hint of uh, smoky bacon along with uh, the sweetness of the malt. Brilliant. And so this, uh, we are now, uh, this is the Lark single malt, and I see, what is the date there on that bottle? Uh, that's the date that it was actually put into the bottle. Right. Yep. Which is, which is um, this is... Uh, I think it's June 2015. June so, 2015, so, so it's only recently only been recently been, been bottled. bottled. Uh, but in actual fact, the process in terms of uh, this, how this whiskey was made and when that process started, how would we describe that? About six or seven years ago, this uh, was actually in the mash tun and in the stills. Um, and that doesn't sound like a very long time in, in whiskey history uh, when you talk about uh, 15, 18, 21-year-old malts in Scotland. But what we have to realise is this whiskey is matured in 100-litre barrels. The smaller the barrel, the faster the maturation. And that's uh, something that uh, is becoming better known in the whiskey drinking world now. Uh, Bill Lark, uh, God bless him, decided that 100 litres was going to be the signature um, mode for, dis for maturation at Lark. And, uh, of course, there are very few distilleries in the world that actually use the little 100 litre barrels because the bigger the barrel, the more economical it is because, irrespective of the size, barrels cost about the same to produce because it's all in the labour of the cooper, not in the size of the barrel. So... Um, where size does matter is in how long you have to leave it in there. And it's very sci scientifically very easily explained because it's surface area to the volume of whiskey. And so the smaller the barrel, the greater the surface area to the volume of whiskey. So we've got a big surface area for a small volume of whiskey. And in Tasmania, um, happily, we also have a, a very wonderful uh, maturation climate because we have uh, warmish summers, cold winters as you've experienced today with plenty of snow on the mountain and we do have the four seasons here often in one day so we have a rapid diurnal range and a very wide diurnal range here high pressure low pressure high high temperature low temperature and high humidity and low humidity and what that does is it actually drives the whiskey in and out of the barrel in, in and out of the staves through that charcoal layer into the wood where it picks up the beautiful sherry or port notes or bourbon notes, depending on what the wood, wood the barrel's made of. This happens to be port that we've got here at the moment. And so we get that lovely, rich um, port character coming into the whisky, giving us a delightful colour and a, just a, a sensational um, thickness of character. Uh, I, 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 find, I call it a thickness because the uh, often um, uh, less satisfying whiskies are thin and they can't find a better word for them. They're just thin. They, they fall off the palate uh, and they just feel like they're not really fattened up. Look, I think that's a very good description. It reminds me um, actually of some of those fat penguins we were looking at today. I sort of tend to think of them when I'm drinking this for some reason, uh -huh. simply because I guess there is that, uh, to me, there is a real depth of maturity in yeah. the taste. Yeah. Um, even though we're talking sort of six and seven years. Yeah. And it, it's got that absolutely 
Uh, it's very filling, and it's really got a beautiful roundness to it, and it just sits beautifully, doesn't it? Yeah, it's started to warm up now, and it's really giving away its uh, its glorious points now. And it has a lovely long finish, which usually is associated with an old whisky. And this was proved to us recently when we received uh, results back from a Scottish competition where our a uh, six- to seven-year-old whisky was given exactly the same score points as a Highland Park 21-year-old. And, of course, the Highland Park 21 is in 300 and 400 um, litre barrels, whereas our um, six- or seven-year-old whisky is in uh, 100 litre barrels. So 100 litres uh, casks can do in six or seven years what it takes uh, you know, up to 20 years or more in the traditional hogsheads and uh, sherry butts. I'm not sure what's going to happen when I send this podcast to my friends in Scotland. I might just d- forget to send them this one and send them the other ones instead. No, we've, we have been, uh, we, we stand in the shadow of Scotland and we are gloriously in debt to Scotland because uh, we've learnt uh, a lot from the Scottish industry and the Scottish industry has fallen over to help us. I mean, we spend a lot of time welcoming Scott. Uh, from the distilling industry here in Tasmania who are visiting and we actually spend quite a bit of time in Scotland ourselves. The relationship we have with with some of the bigger distilleries in Scotland and some of the smaller ones actually is wonderfully um, convivial uh, and helpful. we, uh, we have a particular fondness for the William Grant & Son uh, organisation because that's still steadfastly a family company and um, we rather like that uh, uh, rather than the, I won't mention the uh, multinational um, large companies, but certainly we love uh, Small is Beautiful and that's, that's a Tasmanian thing. I mean, we have 10 distilleries in Tasmania making whisky and another five uh, before the licensing authorities. So within a year we're going to have 15 distilleries here, but all of them are tiny compared to the industrial distilleries of Scotland. Uh, I often say to some people that we would uh, we make about as much in a year as, as William Grant and Son would spill. <laughs> OK, brilliant. <laughs> Thanks. And we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Bill Aronson from The Lost Art of How to Find Things. Would you like to boost your self-confidence, clarity, and communication skills? The fastest way to do that is to double your memory. Learn how to build new neural networks and upgrade your brain's infrastructure and software. Memory coach and entrepreneur Bill Aronson will show you why it's vital to make this investment in your cognitive ability and will start you on the journey of how by helping you find your precious possessions. He'll explain why improving memory is not about recalling your past. It's to assist you to create your future. Losing and forgetting things is not necessary, and it doesn't support you to live an extraordinary life. So if you're one of those people who spend time looking for things that you've misplaced, Bill Aronson's book, The Lost Art of How to Find Things, Freedom from Forgetting, is a must-have for you. It's available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. That's Bill Aronson's book, The Lost Art of How to Find Things, Freedom from Forgetting. Get your copy now. Welcome back, and let's pick up where we've left off. <laughs> and then you were telling us earlier about the story of Bill Lark, is that right? Oh, yes. So, so what is the beginning of, of Bill's story then? Well, Bill's story is quite fantastic, actually. Um, back in 1992, Bill was a land surveyor, um, and, and like surveyors, like to measure things and like to get stomp around the bush. He was also a very keen trout fisherman, which has its uh, Scottish connections. 
And his father-in-law, Max Max Stewart, a very good Scottish name, one of the Royal Stuarts, um, Bill and Max were up in the Highlands actually uh, fishing. And they caught a lovely brown trout in one of the Highland lakes and sat down to cook it for lunch. And uh, Max, in his usual manner, reached into his fishing bag and pulled out a bottle of malt whisky. And there they were waiting for the fish to cook. And Bill, by way of conversation, said to his father-in-law, Max, I wonder why we don't produce whisky in Tasmania because we've got peat bogs up here in the Highlands. I've surveyed a few of them. We grow beautiful hard-brewing barley because we make great beer here, Cascade Bogues and all the others. And we have a lovely climate, very similar to parts of Scotland. Why, why on earth don't we make whisky? Anyway, Max uh, couldn't answer that question on the day, but uh, being a fellow who likes to get the right answer, Bill um, stuck with it, and, and the, the question burned in him. So uh, some weeks later, he was carrying a, a sheaf of papers through Hobart and happened upon our local member's office, uh, our local um, federal government member. The name, name of the fellow was Duncan Kerr popped into the office and Duncan happened to, be, happened to be in the office. And so Bill popped the question. He said, Duncan, why can't I make whiskey in Tasmania? And Duncan said, well, I don't rightly know, Bill, but I'll find out for you. So he rang Canberra and he got on to the Minister for um, Science and Technology, Customs and Excise and Small Business, the perfect fellow. This was Barry Jones. And Barry Jones is a bit of a know-all. He's a very, very wise man, very well-read. And so Duncan said to him, well, Barry, why can't we make whiskey in Tasmania? And uh, Barry said, well, you should know that, Duncan. The Governor John Franklin banned distillation in 1839, and the ban has, uh, has persisted to this very day. Why do you ask? And he said, well, I've got a young fellow here called Bill Lark who wants to make whiskey in Tasmania. And there was a silence for a moment on the phone, and Barry Jones, to his enormous credit, said, you know, that's a bloody good idea, Duncan. You tell Mr Lark to apply for a licence and I'll change the law. And within weeks, the law was changed. Wow, that's amazing. That's quite a story. Absolutely brilliant. Quite a story. And so how long ago is that now? 1992, 23 years ago, um, coming up to 23, and the licence was produced. It was the first small-scale general distilling licence for 153 years granted in Australia. And so Bill and Lynn Lark found themselves in possession of a licence. So they thought, well, we'd better start producing. So they, they got themselves a, a beautiful little 20-litre still, a tiny little still, and started to produce such things as uh, apple schnapps and uh, uh, other sort of schnapps on their kitchen table. And then Bill thought, well, I've talked about it. I'd better have a crack at this single malt whisky caper. So he managed to get some uh, malted barley from Cascade Brewery and... Uh, he devised a way to peat smoke it by uh, hanging um, peat, uh, peat in, uh, smoking peat in um, fires in 44-gallon drums and baskets of malt. And, and he had this marvellous way of telling how long he needed to smoke the, uh, the barley. It was somewhere between two and three cans of beer. <laughs> right, Hopefully that was Cascade Bear, I guess. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so Bill um, b- did start very much from... Uh, an experimental and small scale, but such were the results and the quality of the barley and the quality of the water and the fact that we have local peat all contrived to to make him realise very quickly that he was onto something. And it wasn't long before Casey Overeem um, um, applied for a licence to produce uh, old, in, in the old Hobart distillery, Overeem whisky, and of course Hellyer's Road came along fairly quickly on the northwest coast. And... Uh, 
you know, quickly Sullivan's Cove developed and Bill was the uh, managing um, direct managing distiller there and head distiller with his wife at, at Sullivan's Cove for quite a few years actually producing a lot of whiskey and so Bill learnt very very quickly on uh, small medium and and even large stills the art of distillation and he was helped enormously by um, the Scottish industry, in fact, uh, uh, John Grant from, from William Grant & Son came out to Tasmania and did a still run with Bill and uh, commented on the quality of the spirit that they were producing. And uh, Bill also um, did quite a bit of uh, research himself, uh, both in Scotland and also at the Roseworthy College in South Australia, where they had a course on how to run a brandy still. So uh, he learned about distillation generally and uh, then had the confidence to build a purpose-built distillery, which is the one we, we make our whiskey at now. Right, brilliant. And um, I just, uh, one of the questions I'm reminding myself now to ask you later is that I know that uh, Tasmania's just won a major whiskey award, is that correct? Yes, we've won actually quite a few, but the one that has gained worldwide um, acclamation was the uh, single barrel release from Sullivan's Cove was a sherry barrel, a particularly lovely whisky, which actually won the award of best whisky in the world. And it was actually produced while Bill was the head distiller at Sullivan's Cove. So uh, it's rather funny when people come and say to us, oh, aren't you a bit uh, grumpy that Sullivan's Cove won the best whisky in the world when Lark was here before? And we say, no, not at all, because Sullivan's Cove and Lark have a shared history. And so here we are at the beginning of a very long whiskey tale where Mark is taking us really, I guess, much more on a voyage than a journey in a way, as he's going to be giving us not only some of the history of whiskey in Hobart and Tasmania but all, and here in Australia, but of course also other parts of the world, including Scotland, where he is heading to shortly after this interview. And so please come back and join us for part two. I hope you uh, have time to find a whiskey between now and then so you can you can have a glass with us for part two of this very long whiskey tale. The tale of our trip, really the beginning of the second part of our trip around Tasmania, the tale of two islands. And just a reminder for anybody that wants more details, you can get those from the website, which is larkdistillery.com, which is L-A-R-K-D-I-S-T-I-L-L-E-R-Y.com. And actually, when you get to the website, there's two questions. There's one question from Bill Lark which was a very good question. And there's another question on the website that asks you about your age. And I would I would challenge you challenge you to 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 try the different choices you've got in terms of age and uh, yeah you might end up somewhere very interesting. Okay, cheers. If you're a listener in the US, you can simply text the word EATMAG, which is E-A-T-T-M-A-G. And if you want that in Echo, uh, Art, Technology, Travel, M for Maggie, A for Apple, G for Grapple, uh, it's EATMAG. And you can text that if you're in the US now to one four eight zero. 
418-414-11. If you're in Australia, you simply text the word EATMAG to 61-428-479-700. If you're in the United Kingdom, in the UK, Scotland, England, Wales, you can text Ireland as well. You can text EATMAG to 447903 And if you're in Canada, you can simply text EATMAG to 1587-800-4323. And you can just replay those numbers. I know it sounds like there's a lot of numbers in there, but wherever you are, you can just text EATMAG from those four countries if you're in there, and we'll um, send you some instructions, and you can basically subscribe to our updates that way. So really pleased to finally get that off the ground. And uh, thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.